Well, I have some very exciting news to break to you this morning, which is that we are doing Alpha at St. Peter's. <laughs> Not exactly news, I don't think. Um, but it's still awesome. Uh, I'm still totally behind Alpha. I'm not going to be involved in it at all, which I'm excited about, actually. Uh, there's this whole other ministry taking place that I'm not a part of, which is sweet. Um, but I think it is a, a great thing we should be doing as a community. We should be throwing all of our weight behind this, because I can't really think of a better group of people or a better environment in which to sit down and ask these sorts of questions, questions about the meaning of life, the existence of God. If there's a God, what's he like? How do we know anything about him? Uh, how do we live in light of this God? And ultimately, what does it mean to put my faith in this God? And it's because we're anticipating these sorts of questions, questions about faith and all these things, uh, it's pushing us as a pastoral staff to ask these same sorts of questions. What exactly is faith? You might be asking, you might be asking those same questions yourself. What is faith? I mean, we say this all the time as followers of Jesus, that we've put our faith in him. We have faith in him. But what exactly does that mean? Perhaps even more importantly, what does it mean to live in light of this faith? Because this can't just be about believing the right things. This has to be about a changed life, changed practices, transformed loves. This has to impact the way in which I actually live. So one of the best places to go in the Bible to answer these sorts of questions about what is faith is Hebrews chapter 11. It's known as uh, the hall of faith or the cloud of witnesses. Isn't that an awesome graphic? I didn't do it. Alistair did. Uh, it's, it's very pretty, as they always are. Um, this chapter in Hebrews is a record of people in the Old Testament who demonstrated kind of standout faith in God. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Rahab and Moses and Noah, and the list goes on. Uh, you can think of it kind of like a deck of trading cards. Um, but instead of hockey players or baseball players or theologians, uh, this deck features people who had standout faith in God. And yes, uh, trading cards with theologians on them really do exist. <laughs> I think they're awesome. I don't have them, but I wish I did. Um, yes, anyway, let's keep going. Uh, even though this chapter celebrates the faith of these people, these people, these people in the Old Testament who clearly put their faith in God, it ends with the declaration that their faith was not their own. We don't celebrate these people because of their own ability to drum up faith in God. We celebrate them because of what it says right at the end of this section, the second half of that reading from Hebrews we heard. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. These people's faith is not their own. It's not their own faith. It's the faith of Christ working in and through them. So what we're going to do each week in this series is look at one of these people, one of these trading cards, um, and ultimately, how their faith points to and is rooted in Christ. Okay? That's what this series is going to look like. I think nine weeks long, so eight more weeks of this, and it's going to be an exciting one. I think I get to preach on Noah, which I am a little nervous about. But anyway, so today is going to be a little bit different, though. We're not going to be looking at a person. We're going to be looking at these first three chapters and asking the question, what is faith? Because before we start talking week after week about these people and how they had faith in God and how that points to Christ, we need to first know what it is that we're actually talking about. So what is faith? If I came up to you right now and asked you the question, what is faith? Put you on the spot. I'm not going to do it to any of you. Don't worry. But take a second. Think about it. How would you answer that question? What is faith? Got it? Good. Okay. 
So my guess is that, like me, you would probably go to movies. You'd have movie quotes running through your head about what is faith. Maybe you'd go to the, the classic Christmas film, Miracle on 34th Street, uh, and you'd go with this definition. Faith is believing when common sense tells you not to. Does that sound pretty good? Faith is believing when common sense tells you not to. Or maybe you'd go to the 2000 not-so-classic film, Keeping the Faith. Have any of you seen this movie? This is hilarious. Uh, it's Ben Stiller's a rabbi. Ed Norton is a Catholic priest. They're best friends, and they both fall in love with, with uh, Jenna Elfman. Uh, anyway, it's quite funny. It sounds like a bad joke. Um, but anyway, maybe you'd go with, with Ed Norton's definition as a Catholic priest of faith. Faith is not about having the right answers. Faith is a feeling. Faith is a hunch, a hunch that there's something bigger connecting us all. Or maybe you'd go to the movie Philadelphia, with Tom Hanks, where he has cancer. Or sorry, not cancer, he has AIDS. Um, faith is the belief in something for which we have no evidence. Faith is the belief in something for which we have no evidence. I think you're starting to get the idea. Faith in Hollywood is basically holding a personal belief about something in the face of little or no evidence to prove it. It's a hunch. It goes against common sense. It goes against reason. It's grounded in feeling and emotion rather than concrete evidence. In other words, faith and reason are at odds with one another in this sort of definition. But the question is, is that true? Is that a good definition of faith? Let's try something different, another thought experiment. What if I asked you, what does it mean to have faith in somebody? Would that have the same kind of pattern as faith as we've just been talking about? Well, I think yes and no. It still requires some kind of belief on my part, uh, belief that the person's going to do something or not do something. Uh, but there's a key difference when we start talking about this. This time, there has to be some sort of evidence. You don't put your faith in somebody blindly. Uh, you put your faith in somebody because they have a track record that would lead you to do so. In this case, faith and reason aren't at odds with one another. I put my faith in Carrie when we got married because I, I, I knew her. I knew her well. And our past together led me to believe that that wasn't a bad idea. And it, it has not been a bad idea. And I still continue to think it will not be a bad idea. Um, I'm trusting the person still, though, without knowing exactly what it is that they'll do. But reason tells me that that's probably OK. Right? So as opposed to the Hollywood definition, I think this is actually how we think about faith more of the time. Faith isn't usually the great leap into total darkness that we often think about it. Faith is more often a great leap, yes, but a great leap into maybe the dimly lit, I don't know. Um, there has to be some kind of light, otherwise I'd probably jump somewhere else. As I was sitting writing this up at McDonald's uh, on Granville Street, I'm, I'm liking sitting up at McDonald's. Um, dollar coffees Monday through Wednesday. Anyway, that has nothing to do with this. Um, I thought of two of these great leaps of faith that I've made in my life. And the first one is marriage, okay, as I've already mentioned. And the second is skydiving. All right? These are two huge commitments that we make as people. Listen to, the way in which, listen to the way in which the BCP describes the decision to enter into marriage. Okay? And I think it applies well to skydiving, too. Marriage is not to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly, but reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God. This is good for marriage. This is good for skydiving. In other words, we enter into marriage because our experience and our history with the person tells us that this is a good thing to do. 
But even so, it is entered into in faith. Faith that the other person is going to keep their vows when I have no way of proving that they actually will. And skydiving is kind of similar. It might be something you do on a whim, possibly, I don't know. Uh, but you trust that the people who are taking you up, the people who are leading you to do this, are not doing this on a whim. You have no way of proving that your parachute is actually going to open when you jump out of the plane. Uh, but the track record of the company, the experience, the expertise of the guide, leads you to put your faith in the fact that it most likely will. Okay? Most likely. So in neither of these cases does faith look like the Hollywood definition, I think. It's not opposed to reason. It's not opposed to common sense. It's not just a feeling or a hunch. Uh, it's not believing in the face of little or no evidence. It's different from that. The question we're left with, though, is does this line up with faith when we use it in the sense of faith in God? Is this a different sort of faith? Is this closer to the Hollywood definition or more like faith when we talked about it in the context of marriage? I think at this point we need to stop just thinking about this, kind of musing on the idea. We need to turn to where God says he actually reveals himself most clearly, uh, the Bible. And as I said, there's lots of places we can turn to in Scripture to have a discussion of faith, obviously. Uh, but we're going to go through Hebrews in this series because it's a great place to go. Uh, today we're just going to look at the first three verses of chapter 11. So why don't you go ahead and open up your Bibles or turn on your phone or whatever. Um, we're going to begin with verse 1. Okay? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. I think the first thing to notice about this definition in Hebrews is that faith and hope get tied up together. And this is something we haven't really talked about yet, the relationship between faith and hope. What's the difference between saying, I put my hope in something and I put my faith in something? I think these are often used interchangeably, but they're different. And what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that the difference is assurance. The difference between simply hope and faith is assurance. It's one thing to hope for something, but it's another to say that I put my faith in it. If you're new to this whole Jesus thing, uh, there's certain things that we hope for as followers. We hope for a better world. We hope for bodily life after death, the resurrection of the dead. We hope that at the last day, God uh, will come to reign with justice and righteousness in the world, a world that desperately needs it. But without faith, these hopes that we have are just optimism, naive optimism, in fact. What the writer of Hebrews tells us, though, is that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things that are unseen. Unless we put our faith in Christ, in the fact that he is who he says he is, that he really was raised from the dead, that he really did ascend to heaven, that he really will come back, there's no point in even hoping in these things. If God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, in the words of Paul, we are of all people most to be pitied. The only reason we can hope for bodily life after death, the only reason we can hope for a world put to rights, is because Christ has been raised from the dead. And he's promised to return and to rule. Perfect justice, perfect goodness. Faith in God renders these things not just hoped for realities, but assured realities. But there's a second part to this. This isn't simply about our faith in these things. It's not our faith that makes these things a reality. There's certain streams of Christianity that would say that they've reduced Christianity to merely, if I have faith in Jesus, then he will be raised in my heart. Okay? As though this is some kind of just ethereal, spiritual thing. 
But that is an affront to the gospel. It's an offense against the physicality of Jesus. The physicality of the resurrection. Our faith is only valid insofar as Christ is faithful. That he is who he says he is. If you've ever read that book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, this reminds me of one of the most famous quotes in there, I think. This is what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, that is Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we mustn't say, Lewis says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either he was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He didn't intend to. See, our faith, and therefore our hope for our future, for the future of the world, turns on whether, in fact, Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. I'm leading a Bible study on Wednesday nights with um, some university students. It's a great group of people. And we just started last week going through uh, the letter 1 John. Okay? And 1 John begins like this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Jesus isn't an idea, John is saying. He's not a spirit or a ghost or a figment of the disciples' imagination. He's concrete. He's seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands. And it's for this reason, because of the incarnation, that faith becomes the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. But what do we do with something that we can't see? Something like the origins of the world, say, where there's no one there to witness it. Now that might seem like it's coming out of the blue in the course of this sermon, but I assure you, it's not. I mean, I think it's a very important question our culture is asking, and our, our text itself deals with it. Look at chapter 3, or sorry, verse 3 in chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. I mean, I don't have to tell you that this is a big question. It's a bit of a hot-button issue, both for Christians and for atheists. How did the world come to be? Maybe you'll remember that rather embarrassing debate that happened a little while ago between Ken Ham defending creation and Bill Nye, the science guy, defending evolution. Both of them defending these things as the most logical solution to the puzzle of how did the world come about. And I mean, this isn't a new question either. This has been a question that's been ongoing for, for hundreds of years. For a lot of Christians, evolution has meant, uh, it's, it's, they think of it as a great evil, something entirely opposed to the Bible, to God having created the world. And for many atheists, people who've rejected God, evolutionary theory contributed to that rejection. It's an important thing to discuss. And for atheists, I mean, after all, if we can explain the origins of the universe with the Big Bang or evolution, uh, then why would we need to entertain the idea of there being something more than that? I mean, why would we do that? 
according to this line of reasoning, faith is obsolete. It's a carryover from a bygone era when miraculous things could only be explained miraculously. But we don't need that anymore. We can explain these things with science. Faith, it's simply a crutch for those who aren't strong enough to cope with the fact that this is it. There's nothing else. See, the Bible isn't trying to answer those kinds of questions. It's not answering questions about how the world came to be. It's not concerned with evolution or whatever theory we come up with in 100 years. That's even better than evolution. It's not asking the question of how, but the question of who. Not the question of how, but the question of who. The Bible's concerned that we know that the world wasn't chance. It wasn't an accident. It was thoughtfully and lovingly created. And we had this reading from Colossians this morning. And it said this, Jesus is not only the firstborn of all creation, but the one by whom all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. The Bible is putting Jesus as the center point of creation. To say that evolution proves or disproves God is to miss the fact that either way, to say that is a faith statement. You're making a deduction that the physical evidence just doesn't support. You're going beyond physical. You're going into the realm of what's called the metaphysical, above the physical. No matter how much evidence there is in favor of evolution, and I think there's a lot. I mean, Pope, Pope John Paul II had this great quote. He said, evolution is more than a hypothesis. But regardless, it doesn't prove or disprove that there's a God. To say one way or the other is to step out in faith. So even if you're trying to avoid the topic of faith altogether by rejecting God, you, you can't do it. It's everywhere. We make decisions all the time on faith. Not just things like marriage and skydiving, but even questions like how did the world come to be? This is a faith question. All right. If you walked out of the sermon right now, you would probably think that faith is simply an intellectual thing. This is simply about uh, believing the right things. As though faith requires nothing more than my mind. And while it's certainly true that faith does require intellect, obviously, I mean, even faith in God requires me to affirm these things in the Bible with my mind, it entails a lot more than that. It requires my emotions as well. There's this famous theologian from the 20th century, Karl Barth, uh, and he had this, he said that the moment where we choose to follow Jesus is the existential moment of my life. What he means by that is that it's the moment when I stop considering God uh, rationally, detached, disinterested. And I start being interested in him. I start feeling this interest in him. For Bart, this is the moment, it's, it's a conviction that Jesus is real, that I'm lost without him that he meets these deep longings that I have. Longings to be known, longings to be loved, longings for there to be more than just this. So in other words, faith is not just intellect, faith is also emotion, too. But more importantly than that, faith is also a matter of the will. What I mean by that is that faith requires a radical reorientation of my life. It's not just about faith, but about faithfulness. Let's go back to that illustration we used earlier, marriage. Okay? Faith in marriage means, first of all, that I believe that Carrie is going to uphold the vows that she made for me. I have to believe that intellectually. 
But second, it's an emotional thing. Nobody gets married in a cold and detached kind of way. At least I hope they don't. That would be the most depressing marriage in the world. Um, it's something I know deep down. It's something I feel I want to do. So it's knowledge and it's emotion. But most importantly, it means giving myself over to this marriage and living in a manner that's worthy of the love that Carrie's promised to give me. Faith in marriage isn't just about a belief in the other person, but it's about my faithfulness to it as well. Do you see what I mean by that? Faith is faithfulness as well. And faith in God is much the same. It's not just intellectual and emotional assent to the gospel. Faith is to radically reorient my life, my priorities, my loves, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I treat other people, and put Jesus at the center of all of it. That's what faith is supposed to look like. To say that I'm going to follow Jesus without it changing the way I live is about as ridiculous as saying I'm getting married, but it's not going to affect the way I live my life. I'm going to live it just like I was a bachelor. There's no room for that kind of faith in marriage, and there's no room, even less room for that, in the kingdom of God. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but um, I always love that image, don't you? Um, who's doing that anyway? Beating dead horses. Sorry. Um, but I want to go back to the last sermon series and the paradigm of Peter. Think back to the first sermon that Alistair gave in that series about Peter out fishing on his boat. When Peter gets even the smallest glimpse of who Jesus is, the only way he can think to respond is to leave everything and follow him. It's the only way he can think of responding. And I think that is the paradigm for what faith is supposed to look like. In the New Testament, faith is the total alignment of ourselves, intellect, emotions, and will, with the person and promises of Christ. Faith is the total alignment of ourselves, intellect, emotions, and will, with the person and promises of Christ. Now, I say that as a definition of faith in the New Testament, but the same is true, just as true, in the Old Testament as well. Look at uh, verse 2 of chapter 11. For by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. When it says the people of old, it means these people in the Old Testament. We often set up this canyon between the New Testament and the Old Testament, as though the Old Testament is all about doing the right things, and the New Testament is all about faith. But the only way you can set that up is if you haven't actually read the New Testament very well. All over the place are statements like this. It was by faith that they received their commendation, not because of what they did. And over the next eight weeks, this is what we're going to be looking at. These people, why they're singled out for their faith, why they're commended for this. But how do we say about these people in the Old Testament that their faith points to Jesus? Or that their faith was ultimately in Jesus? I mean, how does that even make sense? I think we can say that, though. Listen to the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12, which we also heard read. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, or to use the more common language, the author and perfecter of our faith. And that might sound a bit abstract, but really what it's simply saying is that our faith, the faith of those people in the Old Testament, was not their own. It's not my own faith. Jesus is the one who sows the seed of faith, and he's the one who brings it to perfection in himself. From beginning to end, faith is a work of God, through Jesus, by means of the Spirit. I love John Calvin's definition of faith. We shall now have a full definition of faith if we say 
that it is a firm and sure knowledge of the divine favor towards us, founded on the truth of a free promise in Christ and revealed to our minds and sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. What we want to avoid as we go through this series is forgetting that last part of this quote. Faith is revealed to our minds, and it's sealed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's what we can't forget as we go through this. It would be all too easy to slip into just celebrating these people for their faith, the kind of faith that they had, forgetting all the while that it's Christ who works this kind of faith in them. Christ who brings it to completion, to perfection, to the point that it's even worthy of commendation. The tricky thing about faith, though, is knowing how we pick it apart. I mean, what's my role in this from God's role in this? If we talk about faith being God's work from beginning to end. The best illustration I could come up with for this was uh, our kitchen table. You can see a picture of it there. That's it. Um, Now, Carrie and I, in our first few years of marriage, we used an old dining room table that was my mom's. And it wasn't the best looking thing in the world, so we, we refinished it. And it was great, but it was big. We had this big apartment, big Edmonton, everything sprawling. Uh, and we knew we were moving to Vancouver, to this tiny, tiny little upstairs Kitsilano apartment. And I knew we needed a new dining room table that would actually fit in our kitchen. Uh, and I wanted to build our own table, right? Be manly, build it, right? My own hands. Um, and, and fortunately, Carrie's dad is a very talented carpenter. In fact, he built this table here and that table over there. Um, and he decided, yeah, I'll help you to build this table. It took us a week to build it. And although I was involved in every step of that process, designing, gluing, planing, sanding, picking up wood, whatever it was, there's no way that I could say that I built that table on my own. I tried to sometimes. Um, Without Lance's knowledge, his skill, his guidance, his tools, even his truck for getting the wood, there's no way that I could have built it. Yeah, I was actively involved in the process. I love to tell people that I built that table. Okay? I might have even told you that. <laughs> uh, but if you're going to praise somebody for this table, it better be Lance and not me. What the author of Hebrews is telling us is that faith is much the same way. We're actively involved in every step of the process. We're not coerced into doing it. We feel a sense of ownership over it. I can even talk about it as my faith, my faith in God. But it's only possible because Christ is the one who reveals himself to us. He's the one who works faith in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. My faith is therefore nothing more than a response to and a reflection of Jesus' faithfulness. So, at the end of the day, is the biblical vision of faith more like the Hollywood vision or more like when we talked about faith in a person? Well, it's not really like the Hollywood vision. It is a personal belief about something in the face of, well, evidence. But when you compare it to the vision of faith that we're given in Hebrews, this vision of Hollywood seems entirely bankrupt. Faith isn't opposed to common sense and reason. It's firmly rooted in the evidence of God's faithfulness to his people throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture, the New Testament. Faith isn't just a hunch or a feeling. It's the total alignment of ourselves, mind, emotions, and will, with the person and promises of Christ. And faith isn't simply personal belief. It's Jesus who sows the seed of faith. It's Jesus who takes our pathetic little faith offering and perfects it and makes it beautiful before the Father. 
So as we go through this series over the next eight weeks and look at all these people in, in Hebrews chapter 11, this is how I want us to be thinking about faith, this big, big definition of faith, where Christ is its author and its perfecter.